Hello and welcome to the Traumanomics Podcast, a place where we discuss a wide range of topics emphasizing healing, change, and growth for abuse survivors. Drawing from personal and professional experiences, we'll discuss issues openly for those in helping positions such as parents, educators, health and mental health professionals, and members of law enforcement. This is Dr. Chris Bertelson. Chris is a survivor, educator, and author. As a teenager, Chris was a target of a notorious child molester in his hometown, a man who went on to abduct and murder one of the victims. This abduction case went unsolved for 27 years. Chris was instrumental in helping bring attention to the cases, which were eventually solved in 2016. And this is Jordan Howard. Jordan is a therapist here in Arkansas with extensive experience working with abuse victims and males in particular. In addition, Jordan works with couples and people with addictions. Together, we hope to share stories and commentary of resilience and healing in a caring and lighthearted way, bringing attention to issues of abuse, addiction, and the effects on individuals and society. Hey everybody, welcome to our third installment of the Traumanomics Podcast, Jared Chiral series, we're going to call this. Um, Jared is going to pick up here just kind of with the intervening years following, you know, the cases and uh, those initial investigations. I guess, you know, we've talked about up to about a year or so after, for sure. After my incident. Yeah, so Jared, take it away. Okay, so we're back at 1990. Uh, early 1990 uh, was my last interaction with law enforcement uh, for and and then there was a number of years that had gone by before anybody had questioned me in regards to my case so I was uh, at that point in time in eighth grade had transferred over to Painesville. I was um, a popular kid in a lot of aspects. I got brought over to the to try out for the varsity wrestling team in eighth grade, and I didn't make the team personally. But my twin brother had had made the team. He actually had to beat me out in order to make the team. But at least one of us two were were on the varsity lineup, which was a big deal in eighth grade. And uh, because wrestling was such a a popular sport within the community. And they're good. Yeah. 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 So, so I mean, at, at that time. At that time, yeah, very, Painesville very had a very competitive wrestling Very well-renowned for, for their wrestling. Yeah. Um, and the varsity coach, too, was a great mentor throughout this transition process that I was dealing with. So, you know, to kind of break it down and... From the time I was a freshman to the time I was a senior, I had ups and downs and, and you know, that point in life is confusing altogether for, for all kids. So the fact that I was dealing with, um, you know, the whole puberty and, and, and those aspects of growing up, I was dealing, not dealing with, I should say, not particularly dealing with the, the trauma that I endured years earlier. And I wasn't a misfit entirely. You know, I was, like I said, popular in some aspects. Voted homecoming king my, my senior year. Played football and you know, was active in, in a lot of things. And like a lot of high school kids had experience with alcohol and some marijuana uh, at that point in life. Uh, 
you know, later in the high school years, I should say. So there were other issues. Again, my dad was dealing with cancer. It went from lymph node cancer, which what after his go around with chemo and radiation got put into uh, remission uh, for the most part. He then developed Hodgkin's, uh, which I think affects the bone marrow more so. And it was uh, a more rapid spreading cancer. So he was continually having to go down to the Mayo Clinic down in Rochester for treatment. And my father uh, and his treatment, cancer treatment, was always a struggle with our family and the financial that it it took on on us as well um not to mention the travel right? absolutely yeah. my you know my dad wasn't um he was a, a custodian uh he was a great man uh, loved his children uh worked for peanuts and worked long hours and i just i, I remember growing up at that point in time and watching him uh, if you've ever seen anybody go through chemo treatment it's very painful and and it's it's kind of terrible to witness. But there were times where I, I remember him puking all night, having you know from the medication, and then he would still get up every morning and do his ten to 12, ten to twelve hour shift at work, come back home, and he would hook up to his his chemo bags again, sit in the recliner, and have a you know a, a miserable night. Uh, dealing with it but again he would always get up and go to work because he was a provider for the family I mean my mother worked too but I think he just he took that on he took that role very seriously it was one of those things that I think a lot of men uh, take pride in uh, and so it gives them a sense of self-worth in a lot of respect but uh, going on from that it wasn't until my end of my junior year, my parents were were struggling and dealing with their own relationship. My mother chose to separate, and my parents had separated my, my senior year in high school. So it was a very, it wasn't a great part of my life. It obviously helped me deal with uh, some other issues that a lot of other people have experienced in their life as well. Um, it kind of it, it helps you see the world for what it is in a lot of aspects. It's not always um, it's not always peaceful world and happy go lucky. There are hardships that we all deal with, and that's part of growing up. So my senior year again. Um, I was exhausted with my whole family environment, my case investigation, and very perplexed as far as who I was at that, obtaining my own identity in life, what I wanted to be moving forward. I graduated high school uh, in 1995 and chose to move up to Alaska where my oldest sister was stationed at the Air Force Base up there. To me, it, it just seemed like a logical place to go because I wasn't quite prepared for college. Hell, I'm, I graduated, but 
not with a very high GPA. There were, I later realized that my trauma had a adverse effect on my learning as well because of my inability to pay attention in, in a classroom. So there was some attention deficit disorders that I had experienced through learning and, and all that. Um, we referenced the book, The Body Keeps Score, a lot. The brain is affected by trauma. Learning is affected by trauma. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, you know, I was successful. I graduated, right? And <laughs> That's right. Moved up to Alaska. Uh, started out as a, a front desk clerk there and... Eventually found this job working out in the middle of nowhere, Alaska, for prospecting for a gold mine operation. I was a core driller, and we would pinpoint what they call igneous intrusions within the earth, anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 feet deep. And by locating these silicate minerals, as they say, that would give them a financial backing to develop a gold mine in the future. So I prospected with this company for three years. And by the fourth year, it became an official gold mine up there. It happens to be, I still believe, one of the largest gold mines in North America. So I was fortunate to see, kind of see a, a gold mine develop from a very early prospective state to a full-on underground gold mine. And it was just a really neat time in my life. It has helped me understand my strengths and, and the fact that I had abilities to, even if it was just to move material, I had the ability, the physical ability to change circumstances around me through my effort and willingness to do something or work. And I used work as my way of dealing with a lot of these repressed memories or repressed anger, feelings, emotions. I would use work to drown out all of those all of those details that I carried with me for a number of years. And what I mean by that is over time I I felt like as long as I would get up and I would work hard through a you know through a day's course, I could sleep really well through the night and wake up uh, you know, aches and pains, but still have a solid night of sleep because I was physically exhausted in a lot of aspects. And the dreams, they just slowly became fewer and fewer. I began to control my environment and recognize my own abilities uh, in developing who I am today. I had come back to Minnesota in 1998, 1997, I come back. After being up there for two years, I come back and coincidentally had a child with another gal around the area. Uh, I was 20 at the time and became a father at the age of 21. There's something about kids that makes life easy to find your purpose. Once my child was born, or at that point, my daughter, once my daughter was born, I didn't have any questions understanding what my purpose in life was. Because at this point in life, it was to do the best I can in maintaining a sense of structure and security and safety for my child. And that was my sole purpose. That's what I did. 
I did the best I had, or the best I could with what I had. And although it was labor-intense work in a lot of ways, um, I went from a cord driller to a mason to uh, just a number of other things to earn a paycheck. But I developed skills, too. Uh, a lot of my other friends who didn't have kids at this time who were off to college and and drinking or whatever it may be, they didn't have the awesome responsibility that I had at this point in life. And I welcomed it in a lot of ways because I had never really fully understood love until I had my own child, uh, until I had my daughter. And anybody, any parent can relate to that. It's a, it's unmatchable to any other, anything that you love in life. You know, your child is, is that which you will sacrifice, whatever, whatever it may be. So did, so did parenting then become kind of a, just become a welcome distraction of sorts. Yeah, it was also exhausting. Everybody's <laughs> yeah. got anybody's right, got up with right. a newborn and and had to deal with the uncertainties of and you're know, 21. What are they putting in their <laughs> mouth now or where are they and you know and I became uh, I guess a helicopter dad at that point and just kind of hovered over but uh, again did the the best with what I had at that point in life and and eventually I bought my first house I think right around the age of 23. Um, I bought my first house and fixed it up and, and put a lot of sweat equity in and taking this old house and, and making it relatively nice. And, and then I had my second child. Uh, this is, this is right around 2003 now. So we're going, we're past 10 years. We're going almost 15 years past, um, the abduction. And so your parenting is obviously been informed by your experience. When you said you're a helicopter dad, well, that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense oh, to me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, of um, course. Yep. Yeah. It, it, with, in regards to who I left my kids with or who All was around, or absolutely. Yes. Very much on the backside of my mind when I was making decisions about my children. So around 2004, that was the point where things kind of uh, took a turn. I was kind of set in my role and kind of at some point had moved on with with my traumatic event to some aspect. But I was approached by a investigative reporter from Channel 11 by the name of Rick Capicella. Uh, this reporter had contacted me and I was working down by Newell. But it contacted me and asked me if I was the boy who was abducted 10 months before Jacob. Now, keep in mind, my privacy was always maintained through the course of this investigation. And I was kind of thrown off by the question, the fact that this guy was even questioning me about this. And well, we went to school together and nobody knew it. Yeah. Except those you told. Well, there were yeah. a few close friends that were aware but uh, it was on the down low. You yes. know? So I agreed to answer the question if this man had told me how he had learned my identity or what made him think that I, I was this individual, individual he was seeking. 
and he began to tell me how he had talked to the Cold Spring newspaper um, editor, and that man had known our family before we had moved out of town. He had relayed our information, and that's how he had, had learned my identity. And because 15 years had already passed, he was interested in doing a story and the association of my case with Jacob's case. And because 15 years had already passed, because I was told at an early age that I was the only case associated with Jacob's case, I agreed to go ahead and do an on-air interview in person, but without using my full name because of the words that I was left with when he released me from the car. That constant fear of this guy may come back and make good on his threat of killing me, or even more so important, possibly hurting my children. So I was still very much wanting to hold on to my privacy, but at the same time, I I knew that my case was relevant in regards to solving Jacob's case. I had always believed that. I had always been told that. And I agreed to do this this video this interview in 2004. It went uh, it went on air. I you know may have experienced a little bit of a little bit of uncomfort having to deal with the people that I I worked with and being associated with that. But People talk. They're going to talk. And whatever they might say behind my back is one thing. If they should say it to my face, that's another thing. So I just let the cards, you know, let the cards fall and and hope that they would generate more leads. And so in 2004, did anything come of it? Other than... Um, a day, the day after it had aired on, uh, on the news, the local radio station had, had asked that I call into the radio station. I, I wasn't listening to the radio station. I got several calls from some friends and saying that Tom Bernard wanted you to call in and, and go into more detail about your case. So I agreed to call the radio station and... And there's still a recording. I th- I'll pass it on to Chris here, and he can possibly upload it to his website so anybody wanting to listen to it can. But it just goes to show that in 2004, when 15 years after the fact, there was still this quest in finding out who was responsible in my case, and even more importantly, who was responsible in Jacob's case. That was something I felt very strong about, very passionate about. So we'll have we'll have another investigation coming up here in 2010. Do you want to share some of that right now, Jared, or should we wait uh, till the next episode? Um, we'll start. We'll start. I'll give you a little more uh, time uh, details regarding this this time in life. After my radio interview, Stearns County had actually called me in after they had heard the two interviews and asked me to come in to share details, to talk about the case again. So I agreed to to show up at Stearns County. And at that time, all the old investigators had retired. So I was dealing with new lead or lead case investigators 
Pam Jensen, John Sanner uh, were new in regards to that. But they wanted to better understand the details back in 1989, and that was the purpose of the interview. We had gone over a number of suspects that they still hadn't eliminated. I think there was a number, like 12 names on this list that existed uh, as possible suspects in this case. But many, many others that were interviewed over the course of that time as well. So it leads into Dan Razier. Uh, Razier, I don't know how you, <laughs> yeah, right. you want to pronounce it. And he was a he was named a person of interest in the Wetterling case in 2010. Uh, and but, early on. And earlier yeah, on. Right. I think they were still, he was on that. He was on that list. list yeah. Right. And I personally, I told authorities back in 1989 and 2004 that he wasn't the person responsible in my case. His height, the, his voice, it didn't fit the description or the demeanor of the person responsible in my case. So we, but we're still very much. Uh, it was still very much a mystery in regards to who was responsible for it. So, so let's um, let's do this. Let's stop right now, and we're gonna pick up with uh, the Dan Rassier investigation in 2010, and uh, we'll just we'll slide from that right into maybe how you and I met um, in 2013, and just move toward the ultimately. How you how you solve where the we case. are today? How we got here exactly? So <laughs> why are we here? Why are we here? So um, we'll do that, and uh, we'll we'll pick up here in our next episode with Jared. So Very thank good. you. This podcast is made available by Upstart Resilience LLC for educational purposes only, as well as to give you general information and a general understanding of the subject matter. This podcast is not designed to give specific professional advice. By using this podcast, you understand that there is no counselor-client relationship nor any other professional relationship between you and the hosts. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent professional advice from a licensed professional in your state.